that hymn is uh, the parable that we read today. That hymn is the meaning of the sermon today. And so if you want, if you got one or if you can find it online, take that home with you and read through the words a little bit later on because that hymn is what we're supposed to learn today. That hymn is what we're supposed to confess today, what we're supposed to say out loud today. That hymn is good news. And in some strange way, this parable is good news. It doesn't seem like it. I don't know if you were hearing all the words that Pastor Dell was reading, but this is a weird and deeply unsettling story. It starts out sounding familiar. Like we've heard stories like this before where Jesus tells of a great king who plans a banquet for people in his city and invites them to come over to his house, his castle, sit at his table, and eat his food. And in the familiar versions of these stories, there's this shocking revelation that the people that the king invites to come to his party, they don't want to come. And in the familiar versions of these stories, what the king does as he goes out and invites other people. And he fills his banquet hall with the kind of people that didn't make the invite list the first time. He fills his banquet hall with the low, the downtrodden, the sick, the people that nobody else really wanted to have dinner with. That's who the king ends up filling his banquet hall with. And that's a familiar version of the story. And that is good news. (laughs) This version of this story is weird and deeply unsettling because... Sure, the king wants to have a banquet. Turns out it's a wedding banquet for his own son. Wants to celebrate his own son's marriage. And he invites the kind of people that would make the list of... I don't know, did any of you pay attention to the royal wedding a few years back? Did you watch that on TV as if it was the Olympics? (laughs) Yeah, Um, I don't know. So the king invites a bunch of people. and, And like the other story, the people that the king invites, you know, he sends out the save the dates... And they send back some kind of RSVP that says, no, thank you. They don't even want to come. So the king sends out like hand couriers, like messengers, and says, here's what I want you to tell them. You got to let them know what's really going on because once they hear it, they're not going to want to turn this down. He said, go tell them the dinner's ready. It's on the table. I've killed the, the, the fattened calf. I've killed an ox for you. Like, the food is amazing. The party is going to be out of this world. You really do want to be here. And the people to whom the couriers come, they say, nah, I, I got I to gotta finish up some work. No, nah, I got I to gotta handle this business. I got to take care of the, the farm. I, I, I just don't want to go, okay? And, and some of the people actually grab hold of those couriers and they treat them shamefully and and kill them. And here's where the story starts getting really weird because the king hears about this and he flies into a fit of rage and he declares war on his own kingdom. And he goes to that city and he burns it to the ground. I'm so glad that it doesn't stop there. It doesn't get much better, but it doesn't stop there. There's more. He still wants to have this party. The food's getting cold. The band is not warmed up anymore. The, the, he still wants to fill his banquet hall with guests, so he sends his servants out again, knowing now this time there's nothing better to do. 
because he just burned down the city. There's no farm to go back to. There's no business to be had. Everyone is just standing out in the streets wondering what to do next. And here come the servants and say, come to the master's party. And it says the servants round up everyone, the bad and the good, and the king has his feast. The, the banquet hall is full. Everyone's there. And then the part that I think bothers me the most, the part that seems least characteristic of this kind of parable, says the master comes down the stairs to get a look at his guests. And he finds someone there that isn't dressed appropriately. He doesn't have a wedding garment on. He doesn't have the robe that you're supposed to wear to this party. Now, to be fair, you probably just burned his closet. <laughs> but... But whatever, he's not wearing the right thing. And it says the king ties him up hand and foot. He, say, he calls him over. He says, friend, friend, how'd you get in here without a wedding garment? You know, you're supposed, to, you're supposed to dress up for this kind of thing. What are you doing? And the guy has no response, no, no answer. He has no excuse. He's speechless. So the king has him bound hand and foot and throws him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and there's gnashing of teeth. And then we all say, and this is the gospel of the Lord, praise to you, O Christ. This is a strange, <laughs> deeply unsettling story. I mean, the obvious question is, what are we supposed to get out of this? What are we supposed to learn from this story? Why is it so weird? And, and why are we reading it in church? Why don't we just, why don't I just preach on Philippians? That was a happy passage. Rejoice at all times. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Why are we studying this? And when we start to interpret parables, we try to find ourselves in the story. We try and figure out what the parts mean and how they line up. And so the first question for today is, we know that Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. We know that if we read the context of the chapter. So it, are we supposed to learn something about the Pharisees from this parable? See, I don't know if you remember where we're at in this, in this reading, but this is Holy Week. It's not Holy Week. Don't freak out. In the text, this is Holy Week. This is the last week of Jesus' life. So what happened was he rode into town on a donkey, and little kids shouted out, Save us, son of David. And they laid their palm branches on the road in front of the donkey, and he rode into town, and he went to the temple, and he found out what was going out there, and he freaked out, and he overturned the tables of the money changers, and he let the, the birds and the, and the cattle out of their pens, and he shouted, stop making my father's house into a marketplace, and he hit the reset button on what the temple was supposed to be, the place where God and man could come together place where we could be transformed by knowing our God and being known by him. He hit the reset button, and then he just left. He went back home for the night. And while he was at home, one of the Pharisees, Nicodemus, came to meet him and had, have a private conversation with him because he said, I want you to explain yourself because I can tell that you're somebody that's sent from God. I know that you're doing something. I just don't know what it is. Will you explain yourself? And they had that cool conversation and then the next morning, Jesus goes right back to the temple, and he walks up, and he stands, like here, podium place, and he says, now I'm going to teach you. And he starts to teach in the temple. He stands up here like he owns the place, and all of the religious elite, they're thinking, who does this guy think he is? Well, we know who he thinks he is, because the Messiah is supposed to stand there. But why does he think that? 
And how can he prove it? So they come up to him, and they start to challenge him, and they have this long argument, chapters 21 and 22. And we're in chapter 22. We're at the end, one of, one of the last things that goes on in this long argument where the people are demanding that Jesus prove that he has the right to do and say and be all the things that he's doing and saying and being. And Jesus responds to these Pharisees with harsh parables that tell them exactly what he thinks of them and their role and their responsibilities. And he tells this parable. And the Pharisees are supposed to see themselves in it, and we can see where the Pharisees are. Like, we know who they are. They're the ones that were invited to the party in the first place. They're the the high-ranking elite. They're the, they're the, the, the assumed guests at God's table. They're the ones that are supposed to be there. And not only do they have other things going on and they don't really want to come to the party, they take God's servants, the prophets, and, and even his son, and, and they kill him. So we know what happens to the Pharisees or what is supposed to happen to their, their avatars in this story. We know what's up with the Pharisees. We can find them in it. So this parable can't be about the Pharisees because they die in the story like right away and the movie keeps going. <laughs> it can't be about them because more stuff happens. And, and the, point of the, the point of the passage happens after we're not even talking about them anymore. So we're not supposed to learn anything about the Pharisees. We've learned enough about them. That's not what this story is about. So what is this story about? Maybe it's about the next slide. Maybe it's about God. Maybe we're supposed to learn something about God in this story. I kind of hope not. (laughs) Because the king in this story is shocking. If we're supposed to really think that the way that God is, is the way this king is, then we have a God that's easily offended, vengeful, and fickle. How are we supposed to know what God's like? Is it, are we supposed to like search the parables and like figure out what's going on and like try to, try to glean from, from these stories what, what God's like and what the kingdom of heaven is like? Like, how are we supposed to know who God is and what he's like and what he has in store for us and how he feels about us, what he's got planned? Like, how are we supposed to know that? We're supposed to look at Jesus. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Scripture says that Jesus is the the exact representation of the image of the invisible God. If we want to know what God's like, if we want to know how he feels about us, if we want to know what he has in store for us, we're supposed to look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, immediately after this conversation, where do we find him? It's like right in that window. That's that stained glass window. That's where we find him. You can feel free to look if you want. Um, in case you're wondering what I'm talking about, it's that window right there. Yeah. Right after this conversation, we see Jesus stretched out on the cross. And he's not saying, how dare you do this to me? He's not saying, I'm going to come back and I'm going to burn down your city. He's not saying, wait till I get my hands on you. He says, Father, forgive them. 
we want to know what God's really like, we're supposed to look at Jesus. And when we look at Jesus, we find out that God is not an easily offended, vengeful, fickle king. When we look at Jesus, we learn that God is our heavenly father. And you and I are his precious children. And he loves you and me with a love that never gets tired, never gets impatient with handing out second invitations and third invitations. He's a loving God that wants us at his table, wants our butts in his chairs, wants us to enjoy the banquet that he's prepared for us. He wants to save each and every one of us. Maybe that's what, Let's look at the third. Maybe that's what this is about. Maybe this parable is about salvation. A lot of us read it and assume that. And it could be, I, I think, if you're willing to think about salvation in a, in a very specific way. Because this parable is only about salvation if we're talking about the same thing when we use this word. Salvation doesn't mean going to heaven when you die. Salvation is talking about what kind of heaven you go to. Now, I want you to think about this because this is, if you've never had this specific conversation before, um, this might hurt your brain and that's okay. And I apologize for getting a little bit philosophical on you, but bear with me because it's worth it. If you've never thought about this before, it's a worthy exercise to go through. And my question for you is, can you imagine what it would be like to go to heaven and for it to be the same as it is here. Like, can you imagine what that would be like? Like, you go to heaven and you're still the same. Like, you get there and it's you that gets there. And all the people that you... You've been, you've been waiting to be reunited with and, and everything that you've been told and all the things that you're, you're hoping about and you get there and all those people that you meet, they're exactly the same as they were here. And our relationships are the same and our way of ordering and organizing ourselves is the same and our level of willingness to care for one another hasn't changed, hasn't moved an inch. Our selfishness is still there. Our obsession with being entertained and comfortable is still exactly the way it is now. Nothing is different. Can you imagine that? That heaven is just this again? Of course not, right? That's not the hope that you and I have that's not what we're, what we're, we can't wait to die to get to. That's not the treasure that's stored up for us. But think about what that means. If heaven is going to be any different than this place is, we're going to have to be different than we are, Right? Right? Like, if heaven's going to be any different, then we can't be the same there as we are here. And my question to you is, if you go, oh, well, duh, like, that's the point. Well, then how is that supposed to happen? Is that magic? 
is it automatic? Is it accidental? Like we're going to be different, but how? And <laughs> we know, we know that we're not being asked to change ourselves. It can't be that in heaven we just like somehow have better willpower and we can muster up the courage and the fortitude and the patience and the, and the selflessness to actually care about somebody besides me. Like we're not, being, we're not gonna be given some sort, of, some sort of superpower there. We know that if we are any different there, then it's because God is going to change us we're not going to change ourselves. God is going to change us. And my question for you, and I think the question just naturally springs to mind, is if we can agree that God wants heaven to be a little bit different than this, then wouldn't it stand to reason that he might want this place to be that way too? And if God is interested and able if he's willing and able to change us then there, what are the chances that he might be interested, willing, able to change us here and now? What are the chances that that might be the whole point? You might, you might end up having Jesus saying things like, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You might have him talking about life then as if it's already begun now. You might have Jesus walking up to somebody who was born blind and not, not letting him stay that way. See, the, the reality today, the truth today, is that God is not He's not interested in letting you stay the way you are. Not then and not now. He has no intention of letting you stay the way you are. And whether or not that's good news to you this morning kind of depends on your response to that question. This parable is about the incredible generosity of God. This invitation that he sends out is for anyone and for everyone. He wants to save all of his creation, all of it. And he died for exactly that, to save all of his creation, all of it. His question to this man that shows up to his party he says, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? Where do those wedding garments come from? 
They're handed to you at the door. He wasn't asking, how'd you get in without one? You can't get in without one. He's asking, why'd you take it off? I know you got one when you got here. Why didn't you leave it on? Here's this weird verse that you might skip over if you don't know what it's talking about. You might skip right over it. It's from Galatians 3, and it's a doozy. (laughs) You've heard it before. Galatians 3, 26 and 27. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith because as many of you as were baptized into Christ, as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. You and I have been We've been handed that, that wedding garment. The, we're not just invited to the party. We're clothed in Christ. And the thing that's going to fix us someday is already on us and in us and at work through us. Each and every one of us. Whether or not you leave it on whether or not you remain in that love, whether or not you remain in his word and his word remains in you and you will bear much fruit, fruit that lasts, all of that just depends on your response to this question from day to day. It's really weird to end a sermon with a question, but sometimes that's how the the parable ends. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this kind of encouraging story, but we, we thank you for what we know is the heart behind it. You don't want us to learn something about the Pharisees in this story. You're not even trying to explain who you are and what you're like in this story. You're simply asking the question, do we want to be changed? Lord, we want to be changed. And we thank you that you don't ask us to change ourselves. Instead, you clothe us in your son. You fill us with your son. You place us into him and him into us. And all you ask is that we stay put. Lord, give us the patience, the boldness, the confidence, the courage to remain in him as you do your work in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.